Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please open up your Bibles or look up on the screen where we have our text for this morning. We sang the psalm, Psalm 12. We are in a series of ten psalms. This is the second time we're doing this where our musicians are setting to music. These psalms, which God has ordained to be the Christian's prayer book, and specifically uh, Psalm 12, which is written, it says at the beginning, for the choir director. So let us hear the word of God as it is recorded in the book of Psalms, the 12th chapter. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Help, Lord! For the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, Because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a psalm for the choir director. So in other words, it's meant to be sung. Like Psalms 5 and 6, this 12th psalm begins with the instruction for the choir director, and then comes something that we don't know, but we think is likely a musical notation indicating that whereas, for instance, Psalm 5 was for wind instruments, this is for stringed instruments, and specifically an eight-stringed lyre which is an instrument that looks like a miniature harp. So this is a psalm of David, and we know the meaning of this. This psalm is a psalm of David. It's a joke. It says it's a psalm of David. I want you to know the Hebrew is not sophisticated there. Now, when did David write this? Well, it's interesting how every psalm you have various students of Scripture making guesses about what particular occasion gave issue to this prayer or that prayer or the other prayer of David, what the Psalms are. Anyhow, the purpose of this Psalm is to plead with God for help in the midst of evil days when evil has been allowed for the moment to triumph. And the Psalm begins with an explosion, a very simple explosion, and it's, help, Lord! And so this is a clear indication that the situation is desperate. He's not suggesting or politely asking for Yahweh to do everything possible to come to his assistance if he's able. He simply cries out, help, Lord. He's like a drowning man crying for help. But it's not water that's engulfing him, but it is the wickedness of the wicked. Now, how bad is it? Well, it's bad enough that he just simply cries out, Help, Lord! And then bad enough that he gives these reasons for God, for him needing God's help. Verse 1, Help, Lord, for, this is why I need help, for the godly man ceases to be. The godly man ceases to be. When the godly man ceases to be, ceases to exist, all is evil, and that evil is unrestrained. And then second, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So godliness and faithfulness are not in decline. They're nowhere. They're absent. And this is often the condition of the church in this world. We're not talking here about the world, but we're talking about the church. It is the people of God, the Jews, that David is talking about. 
And he says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This is Israel. He's not talking about Canaan. He's not talking about Egypt. He's talking about the godly ceasing to exist and the faithful disappearing in Israel. Today it would be in the church of Jesus Christ. And we have to face the fact that God often allows the wicked to rule and the faithless to increase and prosper and the righteous to decline and the faithful to disappear within the church. As in the days of Noah and as in the days of David here recorded, it is often the case that there is no one who is willing to stand for truth and no one who is committed to godliness and faithfulness among the people of God. This is David's lament. At his time, he says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. One of the Bible students that's written about this text says, David had nobody who would plead his case. No one. Otherwise, why would he cry this out? Then his prayer of lament continues in verse 2, speaking of what was characteristic of the church at his time, of the people of God. He says, They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. So first of all, they speak falsehood to one another. When falsehood and lies are the currency in vogue among God's people, which is to say, within the church, the day is very evil. Falsehood is the trend of David's time. Falsehood was what the hipsters of David's day gave themselves to. And we know this because it says to one another, it's not simply one person who has everybody deceived, but to one another. There's there's no truth to one another. In all the social exchanges, lies are the currency. Lies are the currency. It's what they do. They are incapable of anything else. In other words, the one another's of David's time are not forgive one another or be kind to one another or consider each other better than yourself or love one another or speak the truth to one another. Rather, the church had sunk at this time in the life of David to the condition of speaking falsehood to one another. And this is a terrible thing when the currency of the kingdom, the currency of the president, the currency of the governor, of the representatives, of the mayor, of the city council, is lies. I gave up years ago watching the State of the Union address because I just could not abide having my president, and it made no difference which party he was from, having my president flatter me and, uh, what's the word? Um, Pander. That's the word. Pander to me. And pander has nothing to do with pandas. (laughs) Pander is when they tell you that they're going to make you handsome and they're going to give you free drugs and every child will be kept up instead of left behind. And and they just tell you everything they're going to do. But it's like a bureaucrat, as Chesterton says, is growing on every tree. It's like... The money of the government's unlimited. And what's being said to you, everything is a lie. And it makes no difference whether you're talking Republicans or Democrats. And honestly, it was Bush I stopped. When he promised that when we got old, we'd have free drugs, I was done with President Bush. You know? Because of course he can do it, you know? But what's the point? I wanted a leader. I wanted somebody that would say no to me. And so he never said no to me, and I knew he didn't love me. And so I'm done with listening. Who knows, maybe finally with Hillary Clinton, we'll get a little bit of truth, some truth talk. No, honestly. You know? I mean, oh, you people are cynical. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, I won't hold my breath. All right, all right, I won't hold my breath. Okay, all right. They speak falsehood to one another. But remember, this isn't the Republican and Democrats. It's not the State of the Union. It's not the mayor. It's not the city councilman. This is the church. They speak falsehood to one It is the currency of the church to lie. The church, the people of God, the covenant community, that's their currency, to lie to one another. Okay? And, of course, we do see this among the people of God. There is so much lying today that love and fidelity to promises, faithfulness to promises, no longer are sufficient for our most intimate relationships, are they? For the most intimate relationship of husband and wife, it's no longer sufficient to have taken vows. Father, mother, and child no longer have relationships that are characterized by truth in the church, in the church. Otherwise, we wouldn't have much work to do. And let me tell you, we work hard. And so what happens in a situation like this is in the school system, what happens is all the new money goes to hiring counselors. In the church and in society, what happens is every intimate relationship is adjudicated by the courts and by law enforcement officers. So that the only way that you can get people to keep their word is to have the threat of the gun and jail and fines behind it. And you have judges making the most insane decisions you can imagine. I mean, you all know this. Think of the decisions in this church that have been made by a judge. God has given us over to members who lie, who don't keep their vows, and so the elders can't restrain. Just this last week, horrible situation that we had to go through because a member of this church won't keep their word. Within the people of God, we lie to each other. Our vows cannot be depended upon. Truth does not exist. And so what happens? Well, we give ourselves over to restraining orders, judicial decrees, fines, guns, prison, and this is our rule of law and our civil peace. Now, what is the character of the lies that we tell to each other within God's covenant people within the church? Well, verse 2b says, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. They speak flattery that issues from a double heart. And these two things go together as a hand in a glove, flattery and double-heartedness. Now, what is double-heartedness? Well, we speak of a man being fork-tongued, double-tongued. We speak of a man being of two minds or double-minded. You remember me saying that my father, when I was growing up, always said to me, Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that's the King James Version, James 1.8. Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And it is a terrible condition when a man does not know his own mind and his own heart. For a man to find himself incapable of having convictions and therefore of making decisions. Such a man can't help himself. He has to deceive and flatter others. And others have to deceive and flatter him. Because that's the currency when you have no single-mindedness. And you have no single-mindedness when there is no fear of God. Because who are you going to choose to fear if you don't fear God? I mean, there's no end to the number of people we can be afraid of. There's no end to the worrying that we can give ourselves to. And so we go around flattering and deceiving each other. The godly French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal says this. He says, man is nothing but insincerity, falsehood, and hypocrisy both in regard to himself and in regard to others. You notice, in regard to himself. We don't just lie to others, we lie to ourselves. He does not wish that he should be told the truth. He shuns saying it to others, and all these moods so inconsistent with justice and reason have their roots in his heart. 
with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Having a double heart, not a single heart, such a man speaks flattery. Somebody, uh, a young woman recently asked uh, some adults that she was, what does it mean to guard your heart? What does it mean to guard your heart? You know how parents like to say that to their child. Guard your heart. And what that means is, don't you dare look at a boy until you're 18 years old. Don't you dare look at a boy until your mother approves. Guard your heart. Okay, I'll guard my heart. I find myself uh, more than anything else wanting people to read the chapter that I have on the jealousy of God. Because when we teach our children that the solution to bad decisions about who they marry lies in them guarding their heart, and what that is is a placeholder for what? For mama? You know, make sure mama don't get displaced until it's mama's time to get displaced. You know, I mean, it's pathetic. Guard your heart so your mother owns it completely. But what if your mother hasn't guarded her heart and all she wants is to get a rich husband for you? You know, it doesn't work out so well, right? How many of the, I mean, be honest, every eye closed, every eye closed. <laughs> okay, how many of you are prepared to trust most of the mothers in this room to choose a wife for their son or a husband for their daughter? Guard your heart! Well, listen, guarding our hearts means that God is the one that we fear that God has first place, not our mother. And I'm not preaching dishonoring your parents. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if we guard our heart, our heart belongs to God. We fear God. We live for him. We obey him. That's guarding your heart. Guarding your heart is not making sure that Pastor Bailey likes you. That's a joke. All you have to do is use deodorant and you're in. Some of you need to learn that. <laughs> now you're all wondering which one of you. <laughs> well, ask somebody, they'll tell you. In the original Hebrew, this word translated flattery is the word smooth. And what this indicates is that those who are deceptive and who have double mind, double tongue, double hearts, speak smoothly, smoothly, smoothly. There are never any speed bumps when you talk to somebody who is a liar. Haven't you ever talked to a liar and just wished there were a speed bump, <laughs> you know? The way that we knew, we lived on Main Street, and it was a state highway that intersected uh, Wisconsin, the main north-south route outside of the interstate, Route 22. And because our house was painted just like the church, all the bums came and knocked on our door and asked us to give them a motel room for the night and vouchers for meals, you know? And what you loved was when somebody would come to the door and say, hi, I'm a bum, I'll be through here every year or two, and I just need a place to sleep for the night and some food. You just love people like that. I'm a bum. You know, I'm a hobo, I'm a traveler, I'm a wayfarer, I'm a sojourner, I'm a bum. And the thing you hated was when somebody would come to your door and they would tell you things like, yesterday... My mother had an aneurysm, and she lives in Florida, and Greyhound doesn't have a bus going there, and so I got in my car, but I didn't know I had a leak in my gas tank. And so I've gotten this far, but I need gas to put in my car, but I need the gas in cash because I need leaded gas, and I can only get it someplace else than here, because my daughter just got her braces off, and I, my husband used to work for Red Cross, and giving blood is a problem because he's HIV positive, and so we just need money. 
And the more details in the story, the more you knew you were dealing with a liar. It was all smooth. Every bit of it was stroking your pity. And this is the nature of liars in the ungodly, is they just stroke you right where you itch, and you just go down easily. You have every reason you could need to not exercise discernment and to just give in, to be soft, smooth words. They speak glibly. They're facile of tongue. You know people like this? Some of you are like this, honestly. Some of you can't speak a truthful word. Some of you are incapable of presenting a speed bump to anybody you're talking to. And by the way, the name for that speed bump is truth. All right? And it's not good. And somebody who's double-minded, double-tongued, and smooth is always working in a symbiotic relationship with the person they're talking to. They pick their marks, and they know who to pick because they know who to flatter because they know who flatters themselves. And so they set up relationships that are a mutual exchange of flattery. They pick people who lie to themselves about the nature of their character, their commitments, and then they tell them that they're wonderful. You know, I... I look at you and, 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 and I just think that you are just beautiful and you mean so much to me and you're really great and your kids are cool and your kids are bright and above average and your, your hair is very pretty and what good taste you have and how, how up-to-date, how current, how hipsterish you are. How fashionable, how chic your tastes are. You the woman, you the man, you the girl, you the guy. Dude, I want to be like you, super mom hottie. Post the smooth words. Post the flattery. Like heart, like, 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 like heart. Like comment, like, like, heart, heart, like, 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 like. Come on. Yes! My life has meaning. I posted a picture yesterday and I got 72 hearts and likes. My life has meaning. Now, that's bad enough. The trouble is that flattery is addicting. It's like heroin or crystal meth or pornography. Once you start having people flatter you, and once you start flattering other people, there's absolutely no way to jump out of the cycle. You can't do it. Because now, the currency is lies. Have any of you ever been a liar? I have. The problem with lying is once you've lied, you can't stop, right? Remember my story in junior high school? I took out seven books from our library. And so I took them home, I read them, and when my father left on a trip, he said, Tim, don't forget to take your library books back. And when he got back, he asked me in the car on the way to school, did you remember to take your library books back? And, you know, I mean, and so I said, yes, Dad. I meant to take them back. And so then, how on earth do I take the books back when every single time I get in a car, it's driven by my mother or my father, and I have seven books? What are you going to do? And so what happened was, I sat on those books until notices started coming from the library, and the notices said, you have seven books that are overdue. And it's the Wheaton Library, and it's 11 miles away, and you have to ride in cars. I couldn't hitchhike. I was in junior high school. And seven books is a big pile, and we didn't use backpacks at the time. Tim, 
you know, what are all those books you're... <laughs> what are you taking all those books? Well, I realized there was never going to be a way I was going to get those books to the library. So what did I do? One night, Thursday night was the trash night. After everybody was in bed, I got up and I ripped the books to shreds and I put them in the trash can. So then a notice came saying I owed $70. And this was back in about 1964, 5. And I worked for those $70, and I never, never, never told the truth. The library had lost them. And this is our culture today. We're all addicted to people flattering us and lying to us. And we lie to ourselves. We're self-deceived. And so the only people who will be our friends are those who will join the pact of lies that rules our life. And this is the church. This is the church. Trust me. The church isn't different. The church, you remember what I say all the time, which is you go into a comedy club, and the guy will get booed off the stage if he doesn't tell you the truth. But in the church, the guy will get booed off the stage if he doesn't tell you a lie. I often think that the, the, the best way to understand the church is we're people that know what is right, and so we lie to each other. Well, in the comedy club, they know what is right, and they tell the truth. And everybody laughs because of the disparity between what our lives are and what they're supposed to be. But, but I can't get you to laugh. And it's because you exist in flattery and lies. You're self-deceived. And so you can't handle truth from the pulpit. Because the truth is in the church, if we see the disparity between what God made us to be and who we are, we should cry and repent. We don't want to cry and repent. We just want to go to church. Come on, can't we just go to church? It's like, no. Please help me, Tim. Work with me here. No. <laughs> you know, you're so obnoxious, Tim. Why don't you just lie a little bit? A little bit, just lie. Just lie to me. Okay, what do you want me to tell you? Pretty hair? Is that what you want to hear? You got pretty hair. Jody, you got pretty hair. <laughs> How's that doing? <laughs> Mary Louise doesn't like you. Well, actually... Yeah. <laughs> Flattery is just completely addicting. You can't stop. And it's not just that you can't stop, but the dosage has to go up. It's just like drugs. Pretty soon the amount you used to be able to live with, and isn't that the perfect description of our nation and the church today? And, and the nation is not addicted to flattery because the church is truthful. Remember, doesn't, doesn't it say somewhere that the church is the salt and light? Doesn't it say somewhere that it's the pillar and foundation of the truth? Doesn't it command us to guard the good deposit? And so if the, if the country is in the condition, and we're talking about after 40 years of predominance of evangelical faith in our country. I mean, for 40 years, evangelicals owned the country. And you're going to tell me that the reason our nation is addicted to truth or to lies and flattery is because the church is addicted to truth. And how does that work? Well, listen. 
The reason it works is that the church flatters. That's the reason. The reason is that in our pulpits we have liars. And listen, before you get on my case for being a liar, you make sure to realize that the reason you have liars in the pulpit is that you have chosen to have liars. Your relatives and your friends who go to churches where they are, uh, what's that word again? Pandered to and flattered from the pulpit, they go there because that's what they want from the pulpit. They have hired. I've watched search committees. I, I tell you, search committees, the only purpose they have is to, desire, is to make a choice about what is most important that their community get pandered to. So, like, pander to us about the, the relationship of men and women and sexuality. Pander to us about wealth. Pander to us about educational sophistication. Okay, somebody's... Thank you. You know, pander to us about backbiting, fighting, and gossip and slander. Do, do you understand this? And so, in the church today... Honestly, the church's language and the way we talk to us, ourselves is, and to each other is almost as politically correct as society. If you really listen to the vocabulary and the phraseology of the church, it's hardly different from the world. If the world wants to remove shame from homosexuality, if it starts saying gay pride, if it starts talking about same-sex attraction and sexual orientation, all these things that remove shame, and they started out by telling us gay pride, right? Everybody knew what was going on. And you go, pride, right? Pride, wait, 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 pride? But okay, I'll work with them. So pretty soon it's orientation, then it's gay, and then it's queer, and, and you think, well, queer? Okay, I'll work with you. And then it's sexual orientation, same-sex attraction, and then it's gay Christians, and how does our language differ from the world's? Aren't we all pandering to homosexuals? Is the church any different from the world in pandering? You say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't let gays actually do it. I say, oh, how magnanimous of you. <laughs> you know, you don't let gays, as if you have anything to say about it. You can ask them what they're doing. No, of course not. And so there is no shame any longer about a sin that universally across all Scripture is condemned as shameful. And, of course, it just follows adultery. It follows unbiblical divorce. It follows fornication, doesn't it? it is, of course. Why shouldn't the liberals have their sexual proclivities the same way the rest of us conservatives have ours? The only difference is heterosexual sin and homosexual sin. And how different is it? Well, it's different in that it's even more shameful, but we've already gotten rid of shame. Nobody has to feel any shame in the presence of a holy God in the preaching of the word in the church of Jesus Christ anymore. As a matter of fact, you could look at the church as a, an absolutely perfect conspiracy to remove all shame from everyone, except people who say that there should be shame. And them we got a shame because it's hate speech and it's, it's like latent homosexuality and repressed perverse feelings. And it's, you know, we have all kinds of ways of shaming people who have moral certitude and who fear God, right? Right, 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 right. Come on, work with me. Now it's me asking you to work with me to help establish truth. And so political correctness is the speaking of a double heart and a flattering tongue. That's what political correctness is. We think howler, or howly I mean, and honky, and white trash, and cracker, okay? And we say Caucasian or white. We think ignorant, stupid fool but we say what? Uninformed. 
we think cripple, but we say differently abled. We think, I hate you, you prissy blonde. But we say, your hair is so beautiful. We think, my pastor sure likes the sound of his own voice. But we say, what a wonderful sermon, pastor. So very insightful and helpful, you should be on the radio. How come you're not laughing? (laughs) And this this is smooth lips and flattering tongues. This is what it is. And once started, we find the flattery so comfortable that we are powerless to stop it. We're addicted, and those we have flattered tell us to keep it up because they're addicted too. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Now, if this is who we are, what is your prayer? Come on, come on. What is your prayer? Is that your prayer? I mean, remember, we all lie in the church. How many of you would pray the next thing that, King da- that David says? How many of you have this naturally from your heart? The next thing David says is verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Cut off. In other words, remove from the assembly of the righteous, remove from the nation of Israel, cut off, get rid of flattering lips and and lying tongues. Get rid of the tongue that speaks great things. In other words, can we please have a church that is rid of braggarts? braggarts and of and and of flatterers? Can we get rid of people that that, that that talk big? Can we get rid of them? Now listen. The truth is braggarts and people who talk big are ground zero of the conservative Christian church today. I can't think of a more perfect description than the conservative Christian church today than braggarts and flatterers. There is no reason to be hopeful about the church today. None. And yet all the church can talk about is God's mercy and grace with the understanding that that's all you deserve from God is mercy and grace. Every church in America today should be condemned by the pastor to the point where the people are crying out for God. But instead, every church is pandered and flattered, and every church is receiving healing that is inappropriate for the condition of the church. God's servants, the prophets, are healing the people's wounds lightly. They are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's the church today. We couldn't even imagine having preaching that's characterized by the cry of the man of God, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. James 3.5, likely making an allusion to this Old Testament text, says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. That tongue that David says speaks great things. Who speaks great things? Who boasts great things? Well, yeah, every political candidate. And some more than others, the only word to describe politicians anymore seems to be braggarts. They can't seem to help themselves. They habitually flatter the electorate, and the electorate, the people who vote, love it that way. But where does it start? It starts with false shepherds. It starts in the church. It starts with you demanding that your prophets, your preachers, flatter you. And if we don't, guess what? You'll leave the church. Not us, right? Present company excluded. 
Yeah, they already left, yeah. Listen to this, Isaiah 30. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel. So how does God respond when the church is in this condition? How does God respond? Is God a doting grandpa that carries hard candy in his pocket? You know, does he just want to encourage us that, yeah, he knows we're a lot worse than we could, but his grace is, is much greater than we could ever imagine. Is that how God, he walks around popping hard candy into our mouth? You know, I made a mistake right before I came up here. I was holding uh, Clementine. I want to say Samantha. Okay. I'm holding Clementine. I haven't been able to hold her in church for a year or half a year or whatever. And I think to myself, you know what? I know how to get her to be happy in my arms because, of course, she's not. She sees her mother. She sees her dad. And so I walk back into the kitchen, and, and there's a bunch of little things of animal crackers, right? And one of them has a sign very clearly labeled, use this one next. So I didn't go over to the one that I wasn't, I opened the one, that, and I got out three, three little animal crackers. Then I thought better, and I, and, I, and I put one back and gave her two, one for each hand. So that calmed her down for a little while. But man... Once those two crackers were gone, I had created a monster. <laughs> Honestly. Her mother didn't interest her. Her father didn't interest her. Nothing interested her except she was wanting out of my arms to go back in that kitchen and get animal crackers. So I gave her to her father and I said, I've created a monster and she's your problem. <laughs> and isn't that, isn't that a perfect description of the church today? Do you ever think about how hard it is to be your pastor after you've been lied to for decades? You ever thought about that? Do you ever think about how hard it is to be your pastor when you can look at other people in this community and they just seem so smug and happy? And you go to church and you get, you poor, 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 pathetic person, you get beat up. You know? And who needs it? You know? I mean, my dad beat me, so why should my pastor beat me? Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And if there is a doctrine that is dead in the church, it is the holiness of God. We have no fear of God because we don't know His holiness. And here's the next verse in this text, in Isaiah 30. Therefore, oh, oh, oh. this is God saying, therefore. Okay, okay, therefore. Thus says the Holy One of Israel. Just gotten done saying, I don't want the Holy One of Israel. He says, thus says the Holy One of Israel. Since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and what? Guile. You've put your trust in lies, in guile, in deceitfulness. Therefore, since you have rejected the word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, you not just put your trust in, but it's like a crutch, it's like a wheelchair, it's like a, a walker. You rely on guile. Therefore, this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. And listen, brothers and sisters, I have absolutely no question that that's what we're going to see in the church in America in the next 10 years. I have no question. I'm not a prophet. It's just so obvious that it's like hitting me in the face. It's obvious. It can't hold. We cannot betray God on sexuality. We cannot betray God on money, betray God on pride, betray God on choosing educational degrees 
over purity. Are you with me? We cannot do these things and have the center hold. There is no center. If we teach our people not to fear God, but to fear not having a college degree, guess what? They'll fear not having a college degree over God. And so they'll fornicate, and they'll get their college degree, and guess what? They'll get divorced, and the mother will pump in her office, the baby will be raised by somebody else, and guess what? The husband will commit adultery. Did you know that it's something like 70% of the homes in our country now the woman is the primary wage earner? Can you imagine that? And this is a Christian nation. Jeremiah 5.30, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? What will you do at the end of it? In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, young pastor, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Uplift, encourage, strengthen with great patience and instruction. Is that what it says? No, it's not what it says. What does it say? It says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For, why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And people, this is the church in America today. This was what was true of the church of David's time. This is true today. This is who we are. We want to be flattered, and we want lies, and we want our ears scratched. You want to know why you won't invite anybody to come to church? You won't invite them because all your friends and neighbors and relatives are constantly being flattered and having their ears scratched. And you can't conceive of bringing them to a church where they get God's word, where they get truth. You can't conceive of them sitting here and not being flattered. It's like, that's not going to work. That's not evangelistic. That's not gospel-y. How are we going to grow if we have a preacher that tells the truth? And so what you do is you wait until Pastor Carell's going to preach, and then you bring them all in. But you tried that. That didn't work. They didn't like him either. You thought he'd be a softer touch than Tim. So then you decided, well, what about Stephen? So you had to wait a couple months. Because he was in Maine with Joni. And then it didn't work with Stephen either. And so then you thought, oh, 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 oh I know who it'll work with. It's going to work with Lucas Weeks. Lucas, when are you going to preach? Lucas says, I don't know. And you say, well, when you, when you know, would you tell me? So you bring him in with Lucas Weeks. And the thing about Lucas is he's such a people pleaser that he never says anything difficult. And you've learned that being in counseling sessions with him. You know, Lucas just strokes your ego. So then it's like down to Jake or Phil or Alex. When are you going to have faith for God's word? When are you going to have faith for God's spirit? You really think it doesn't matter where people go to church? You really think it doesn't matter what they eat each Sunday? It's all Christianity, right? Right? 
right? Let them go where they want, just as long as they have a certain kind of spirituality, whatever that means. <laughs> and you know most places what it means is tickled ears done by wolves. That's what it means. It's not about me, people. It's not about Jake. It's not about Jody. It's not about Max. It's about this book. And this book is the Word of God. And this book has been tried and tried and tried by every generation of the godly who fear God, and they have never, ever found it to fail. I once read a statement by somebody saying, I think it was Kierkegaard, he said something like, you know, what could be a worse condition to be in than to be a preacher who didn't believe in the Word of God? The Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all men most foolish. Listen. You are not above the condition of our nation, and it is a condition of being surrounded by the godless, the unrighteous, flattering tongues, double-minded, double-hearted, smooth talkers. This is the world that we live in. And yes, we may be on guard against our children turning into homosexuals, perish the thought that they would have to fight that sin. But I wonder, do you really work in any way to keep your children from being flattered and flattering others? Do you keep them from being glib, facile of tongue? Do you keep them from being smooth? Well, the one thing that's absolutely sure this morning, reading Psalm 12, is that Psalm 12 is not flattering us, and it's not giving us a smooth message. It doesn't go down easily. And so what is our response to that? Well, what we find is that David cries out, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, so these are the tongues, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? And then God answers, and this is what God says in verse 5, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Do you know what happens when a culture and a church and a nation gives themselves to flattery? What happens is the poor and the oppressed, the orphan and the widow, have no hope. Do you understand this? When flattery rules, nobody bothers to sacrifice themselves for the sake of those who suffer. You realize this. And God sees the suffering. God sees the unborn children who are slaughtered in the millions. God sees the elderly who are starved and dehydrated to death. The newborn defective. God sees the illegal alien who cooks your meal at the Chinese, cheap Chinese. The Mexicans. Our nation is a nation of hypocrites. We get our food from them, and then we say we're going to vote for Trump. <laughs> I have no patience for that. You know I don't have any patience for that. And I'm going to hear it from Eric Rasmussen after this sermon, too. He'll tell me I'm wrong. And I keep saying, probably I am. But I'm going to still tell you, you live off the backs of the oppressed. Do you realize that? You live off the backs of your unborn children that you killed so that you could get your degree. Do you understand me? 
And you say, I didn't do it. And I said, just look around. We won't have to look hard to find the ways that you have lived your life on the backs of the poor and the oppressed and the suffering. And God says, okay, it's over. It's over. He says, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. And people, these are precious words. God arises and he sets the afflicted and the needy in the safety for which they long. They have suffered long enough. And the time has come for God to arise and vindicate them. Now, is this precious when God says, I will arise? You remember earlier I said, when flattery prevails, is this oppressive and do you pray for God to cut them off? I mean, really? Is that your response like David? Well, now, when God says, I will arise, is your heart so caught up with the oppressed and the suffering that when God says, I will arise, you go what? You go what? Finally. Would any of us say finally? Other than Bob. And the men that have loved Bob. Those who suffer. Well, listen to David. David's response is to say, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. In other words, it's right here that David, all of a sudden, finally has reasons to celebrate, right? And what does he celebrate? He celebrates the words of the Lord. They're pure words. They've been refined seven times. In Hebrew culture, seven times is the perfect number. So the, the words of the Lord have been taken through the fire that purifies the dross so much that there's no impurity left. None. Another reason for inerrancy. Okay? Absolutely pure words. This is David's response. God, when he speaks... He can't lie. You know, this last week, I was, um, or two weeks ago, I was talking to a guy. And this man, um, it was before and in the middle of and after an interview. And so we had three different times to talk. And he was just completely bound up with the fact that his adult son uh, was being divorced by his wife. Now, that's sad, right? But the thing that was so awful was that this adult son never stopped accusing God of evil. He claimed to be a Christian, a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, and he never stopped accusing God of evil for not keeping his promises. And this is always what we do. We always accuse God of failing to keep his promises. That's why we're bitter. But God always keeps his promises. His time schedule is his own. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said about the second coming that only the Father knows. God doesn't have to do what we want when we want. And I said to this Father, you need to go to your son, and you need to tell him, that God doesn't have to prove himself to him. Your son needs to be flipped upside down. So that instead of judging God, he submits to God's judgments and shuts his mouth and waits on the Lord. One of the commentaries on this text says, notice that David doesn't lead a rebellion against the kingdom and against all the evil rulers, but he says, help God. Help God. And so David at this point says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Psalm 119, the same David says this, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is this how you respond to God when you suffer? How sweet are the words of God, sweeter than honey. Is that how you respond when you suffer? Oh, the sweetness of the word of God. It's like honey to me. From your precepts, laws, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it. I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. 
you know, you think, oh, no, he probably had it nice. He had a Tesla, you know, and tenure. And so that's why you can pray this. He says, I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth. He's exceedingly afflicted, and he gives freewill offerings of his mouth, O Lord. And teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I've inherited your testimonies forever, for they are what? They are a joy to my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes until I, what? Until I, until I feel like maybe I can't depend on them. He says, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, to even to the end. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding my place and my shield. I wait for your word. God is the God of the fatherless. He is the vindicator of the oppressed. He's the comforter of those who mourn, the one who breaks the jaw of the wicked, the one who snatches their prey out of their bloody mouth. That's God. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. And then, because we're so um, committed to uh, being able to leave uplifted, David made an editorial decision or submitted the the manuscript to Jake. And Jake cut off verse 8. Because we needed to leave upbeat, right? Didn't we need, don't we need to leave upbeat, right? And so we just end happy, clappy. Right, 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 right. Is that how David ended it? The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. It's like, David, what on earth? We are going to preach this as a text. You know, it's like Psalm 119. Don't I hate the wicked? Away from me, you bloodthirsty men, you. Don't I hate you with a perfect hatred? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Why couldn't we just take those four verses and just excise them? Listen, we need to grow up and to speak the truth. That's what it means to be a Christian. We speak the truth. And listen, there's nothing, nothing better than the truth. When finally God released me from lying. Oh, Oh, it's so nice to no longer have an inclination to lie. I mean, I still lie, but I mean, that kind of thing, you know, the library books, it just makes me vomit to think about being in such bondage to lies. The church should be a place that doesn't flatter each other, right? And, you know, you might think that that means that it'll be, uh, that it'll be nasty and brutish among us. It won't, actually. You know something that's sweet is when you remove a braggart from a group, all the relationships get sweet because nobody has to be guarding themselves against somebody who's trying to flatter them and lie and create dissension so they can be at the top of the heap. So, one of the commentators says that at the end of... uh, that at the end of all things, it's often much, much easier to be around honest pagans than it is church people. Okay? That should not be true of us. Because Christ didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And so in the church, we must not flatter each other. We must glorify God, not each other. Right? Right. How sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil down Aaron's beard. Blessed be the tie that bonds our hearts in Christian love. Fellowship sweet that prevails. but it requires truth.
It requires truth. Please have faith that the word of God is sweet. Have faith for your friends and relatives and loved ones and neighbors. The word of God is sweet. All it requires is the Holy Spirit to work. That's all it requires. And he's promised he'll work through his word. You take him to a church where there's no requirement for the Holy Spirit to work. And you know the old statement, don't you? Love built on beauty, quick as beauty dies. And that's why the church in America is in for a bad time. Because it's built on beauty and not truth. It's built on flattery and lies. And so we will recommit ourselves to being truthful with one another, to loving the, the words of God, to not accusing God of not being faithful to his promises, to caring for the poor, the oppressed, and the suffering, right? To trying to make sense out of what Bob sang, right? How many of you can try to make sense out of what Bob sang? How many of you? Okay, that's good. Read his book, his biography. He has a biography, and it's very helpful to know Bob. And then you'll love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sweeter than honey. We thank you, Father, for Bob and for Lexi and for those who suffer emotionally, those who have been abused. We thank you, Father, for those who have fallen into sin and confessed it. We thank you, Father, for a church where sinners are welcome. We pray that you will keep it that way. And Father, we pray that we will come to love your word and to find it sweeter than honey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.